Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ron Swallow. I'm Ed Greer. I'm producer Bill. And today, we have uh, the illustrious producer Bill to come talk to us about one of his favorite filmmakers and one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. We, we kind of strayed from our versus format, because I don't know anybody that I would want to put up against Kubrick to take time away from him in this format. <laughs> I want to talk about Kubrick. I, I want to talk about Kubrick with you. That I would just, just so that I could talk shit about him. Uh, <laughs> what? Ooh. David Lynch. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I Lynch, Lynch versus Kubrick is a trouncing to me. Yeah. Uh, of course. That's yeah. why, but part of me just is, there's just a, there's just a small part of me that wants to be mad that people ever liked that guy. But let's, let's not. <laughs> I, I see. I can't. I can't co-sign that because, like, I, I, I know you can. Most I people get, can't. That's the thing, though. Like, I I can't count myself as a David Lynch fan necessarily. Like, I, most of his work doesn't necessarily speak to me. But I totally get why other people like it. I think I'm just missing the chip. You know. Yeah, maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's well, how I should I should be more nice about it. But I do. Uh, I don't know if there's anything Kubrick's done that I have been like, oh, this sucks. So. Well, I mean, Cooper does have his detractors, and well, he does I, I have. Should, I should you know. say not. <laughs> Dude, Kubrick does have his detractors. Yeah. He does have people who feel that he um he he's a bit cold. I hear that. I hear that uh, milk toast uh, rebuke every now and again. It's a little bit cold as a filmmaker. I I hear that. I hear a lot of that stuff. So so, Bill, what what about uh, just as a primer? When did Stanley Kubrick uh, films enter your life, and when did you really start getting into them? Because those two points might be vastly different. You know, I I think I didn't really appreciate Kubrick until film school, which was after I went to and graduated from college. Um, and obviously, I was into movies way before I actually went to film school. And I was always aware of Kubrick. I had seen 2001 while in high school and was completely baffled by it. I had seen The Shining uh, probably while in high school and just didn't get it at all. And definitely my my entree to Kubrick was at arm's length. Oh, um, Clockwork Orange I saw in high school, as most you know young white boys do in high school. And <laughs> could never, I, I always found myself somewhat turned off by the things that I saw, but then like couldn't, get it out of my head. And I think where that really I think where that really came came to a head for me was with Full Metal Jacket. And I saw Full Metal Jacket in college. And I don't even remember the circumstances, but I remember I was in college the first time I saw it and I I watched it with a guy who's still one of my best friends. And by that time I was so exposed to all of the things that had spoofed Full Metal Jacket. I mean Arlie Ermey's performance of Sergeant Hartman in that, um, you know, is just a legendary, legendary thing. Mm -hmm. And so just through osmosis, like you've seen most of it before you've ever seen it. But I think Full Metal Jacket was the first time I got Kubrick. And maybe it was a consequence of being in college and having a little bit more of a fully developed brain. But I realized, oh, this is a guy who's just trying to do something different than any other filmmaker probably that I had seen to that point, arguably any other filmmaker who's worked in the, who's worked in film. And, and there's a few things behind me saying that, but just from a personal experience, seeing Full Metal Jacket started to turn me around. 
And I started to revisit some of those other movies that I had already seen, sort of with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I was in film school, I was kind of all in because then I started (laughs) to learn about, I started to learn about where Kubrick came from and the fact that, you know, he acted as his own art director on so many of his films. He created the visual effects himself. You know, he was an absolute uh, genius with cameras and lenses. And, you know, it was, it appealed to me because I think my mind works that same way. Like to me, um, creativity is so tied to a mastery of craft um, that it just seemed like, oh, this is a guy working in a tradition that sort of speaks to me just from a work standpoint. And yeah, from there, it's just the more I learned about the guy, the more movies I saw, the more I kind of saw and resaw those movies. It's just one of those things that it, it seems like a bottomless pit of things to admire. Um, the movies, you could take so much away from them. You can get lost in them aesthetically. You can get lost in the themes. I think that they do things to you emotionally and mentally that hardly any other movies do. And then as a guy, you know, as a guy, he's interesting. And so I think we could talk about all of that. But that was that was sort of my path to appreciating Kubrick. And I guess it wasn't until my mid-20s that I really came to this place where it's like, oh, this guy is a verifiable genius above and beyond almost all of the people who did what he's done. Uh, Ronnie, when did you first see a Kubrick movie? What was the first Kubrick movie you saw? Well, it's I don't know if this is a story I've told before, but one of the things I did when I was a kid was I would sneak down and I would watch things that my parents were watching because they had a setup where like we had this uh, townhome where the stairs would come down. The couch was against the stairs and I could sneak a view because there was just like this little triangle. <laughs> the TV was against the wall so I could watch whatever my parents were watching from a little sneak down. They might have known I was watching. Who knows? Either way, I watched The Shining uh, from that position and regretted it for 10 years afterwards because of nightmares <laughs> forever. And it wasn't until much later that I even found out that that was Stanley Kubrick, of course, because, you know, I was a kid and I didn't wasn't thinking about who directed films. Um, I just know that that's, those twins and the blood coming out of the elevator uh, scared the shit out of me for a, a very long time. Um, then in high school, as a white boy, just as producer Bill... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, (laughs) uh, sorry, I can't stop laughing. I, I, I also saw, um, now my brain stopped working. Um, uh, of course, Mm. uh, my dad liked Lolita, uh, cause he was a creep. Um, and, 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 um, I think, I think that's one of some of the only stuff I saw as a kid. And then of course, uh, space odyssey. Um, now, Space Odyssey is one of those ones that I don't think I understood what the fuck was happening, but I enjoyed how everything looked so much that it didn't really matter all that much, if that makes any mm. sense at the time. Because um, mm. it just looked incredible. Um, and I think this is one of those interesting things that, that for me where I found out, I found out that it was Stanley Kubrick who did a bunch of stuff after I was like, I like this, 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 and this. And it's like, oh, that's 
all Stanley Kubrick. Almost like whenever I hear a pop song I like, it's Justin Timberlake. Stanley Kubrick to Justin Timberlake. Yeah, but, you're just bringing Kubrick back. I I, I get what you're saying. <laughs> uh but I, I think I think overall I have very similar experience except for uh, I didn't watch any of these academically. Like none of these were ever shown to me as some sort of like this is what film is. Literally never happened. I don't really have that education. Mine was like obviously finding out about there was Platoon and there was Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. And it was like those seemed to be the Beatles and, and Rolling Stones of my day as a kid it was like both of them were great but one of them was about a group of people who went through something and had a tyrannical dude fucking with them and the other one was full metal jacket no i'm just joking like both both of them were about the same thing but they explored it so so so, in such a different way kubrick's is more insular it focuses on less characters it's got two acts instead of three it's got all these different earmarks ab- about it that make it a different treatise on the Vietnam War than Platoon was. Platoon was about comradeship and brothership and shit and people getting messed up in a machine. And I think Full Metal Jacket was about the single-minded indoctrination that happens to you to become a soldier in that, especially in that war where they kind of have to get you gung-ho to go shoot rice farmers and shit. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So that was like a big deal to me. That Full Metal Jacket was how I intellectually engaged with the Vietnam War. I wasn't a platoon guy. I liked it later. I was a Full Metal Jacket guy through and through. And then I saw the things like uh, Clockwork Orange and The Shining and stuff like that. And I started to put, put it together like Ron did. Like, oh, this guy did all those things. Although I got to say, not the biggest Shining fan. I, mm. I get it. I, I get I it I as mean. a painting. I get yeah. it as a painting. I don't feel it, but I get it as a painting. Kind of how Ron saw 2001 as a kid. But I think, again, you know, The Shining is such a great example of of most of Kubrick's latter stage work, which is he was essentially trying to invent a visual vocabulary for horror from whole cloth, mm-hmm. right? Like, how do you make a horror movie that doesn't use any of the techniques of any other horror movies? Mm-hmm. And whether or not those techniques are effective on you is going to be super important to whether or not you enjoy The Shining. But what, regardless of if they're effective on you, you still have to appreciate just the sheer balls of mm-hmm. being like, I'm going to find ways to creep people out with visuals that literally nobody has ever even thought to do before. And that's where mm-hmm. you get like all the weird camera work and the weird production design and this, I mean, the weird use of sound and music and the weird performances and like everything in that movie feels so weird because it's a conscious decision to like, eh, we're not going to do this the same way they do any of these other movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely seems like. And I'll, let me say this too. Um, I think it's interesting that that Kubrick, at the same time that I think most people would consider him super artistic, maybe even a tiny bit pretentious, right? He's also very successful at the box office. Very successful. He's done. Very well. I mean, you know, obviously it's not Spielberg and Lucas and all of that, but it's pretty close. I mean, if you look at the the box office, he he tripled or even many times more, depending on the movie, uh, the cost of his budget. And I mean, which is which is also funny because you know 
he's a guy who often was proven right when he would run way over budget. Um, you know, he, he famously worked outside of the studio system most of his life. And so he was never really working with gargantuan budgets and he would always run over schedule and over budget because he was such an exacting and as you say, possibly pretentious craftsman. And yet the results kind of always spoke for themselves. And mm-hmm. again, it's like a part of me just values that so much. <laughs> well, I mean, dude, trust me, I, I, I get how you would see like, look, there's a certain amount of bruceness that leads to greatness. I bet you watched uh, The Last Dance 57,000 fucking times. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, <laughs> dude, I grew up in it. I grew up in that era. I mean, like that. I was a kid from Chicago in the Michael Jordan era. Like. I love the last dance, but like I didn't need to see that documentary to get me in that mindset. That's all. But I'm dude, saying. I I just wish that uh, we had known all that about Michael Jordan back then. I I I don't. Would the pathological narcissism trend have moved up ten years, twelve years, fifteen years? You know, if we knew that certain people who achieved this type of thing. I'm mentioning all this because there are people. Who think of Stanley Kubrick as the biggest fucking bastard they met? That they have James Cameron or above level stories about this guy. Like uh, Vincent D'Onofrio told one, uh, I think he was talking to Kevin Pollock or somebody, and he was like, "There was one day that he heard a guy, uh, Kubrick's on a crane with a fucking megaphone, and there's an actor down, lonely, having to act out something." And D'Onofrio said he heard Kubrick go. <sighs> Now this is tape. Now this is through a megaphone through the, for the whole crew to hear. This is take 73. None of them have been good. Go so again. You know what, though? I mean, you might. Here's the thing about that, though. Like, that might be shitty directing, right? Like, you're not getting people to do what you want. However, there's something admirable about just the matter-of-fact quality where it's like, look, I don't want to be doing this either. If it was good, we'd stop doing it. You know what I mean? It's not like he's going up and screaming in somebody's face like the horror stories you hear about Michael Bay or James Cameron. It's just like, look, I showed up to work. If you don't show up and do good work, we're just going to fucking keep doing this. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, sure. Should he add in, I would like you to do this or that or show this emotion or et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, possibly. Uh, But, you know, at the same time, you can't blame him for getting annoyed after 73 takes. No, and like and he essentially invented that David Fincher um, technique of let's do so many takes that the actors lose all sense of pretense and you just grind them down so much that you end up with like idiosyncratic and naturalistic performances almost by accident, just because you've abused them that much. Kubrick invented that technique. Yeah. So like, uh, we should get that out up front. Shelley Duvall, you know, off-sided and, and well-known, the female lead in the shining just literally felt emotionally tortured by Stanley, by Stanley Kubrick during the filming of that movie. So like all this stuff right up front. Yes. He was not a humanitarian the way he ran his film sets, to say the least. Well, and also one thing you were talking about his uh, upbringing. I just kind of for people who don't know anything about it, and I frankly didn't know too much about it before I started looking into it. But like him being like a a kid 
and learning how to play chess really well. It was like a big part of his life to the point where he could hustle people. He got a camera at 13 and started looking at a lot of stuff basically as a camera. Like obviously he like became a camera at 13 and just never stopped. And that's you know, yep. him trying to find a bit. It was almost like he bionically became a camera at 13 and his whole rest of his life was cyborg like trying to outfit himself with better and better lenses. He, he talked to NASA for, for Barry Lyndon. He talked to NASA. Yep. He talked to NASA a lot in 2001, but he talked to NASA about Barry Lyndon because Barry Lyndon took place before there were any sort of lights. It was in the, in the, uh, in the deep past. Uh, so basically everything was lit back then by candlelight. So he tried, he had to figure out what kind of aperture for the lens he had to, he had to find it. Where in the universe is this lens that could film a scene of 50 people in a room lit just by candlelight and we see it good enough to be in a fucking movie. And he did that shit because that's what he does, yep. <laughs> you know. Uh, and that, that is uh, one of the many ones he won awards for, too. Uh, oh, Barry Lyndon got paid in awards, bro. Of course. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, just to put a finer point on it, like, he contacted NASA. They made him a custom lens oh, using shit. lens technology <laughs> from te- from space telescopes just so mm. that he could shoot Barry Lyndon with real candlelight. Mm. I mean, that's that's the <laughs> level of exacting craftsmanship that we're talking about. And it's just like, and these guys, and that's this. It's wild that there are people that just come along and they just demand things be like George Lucas. Just a, hey, I'm trying to do a dogfight in space with unnatural sounds and laser swords. Now y'all gonna have to make up how to do that. I'm trying to do dinosaurs, and I ain't doing no Harry Housen shit. I'm trying to do dinosaurs the best way possible. Make it, do it, you know. Well, and so here's the thing that I, I want to say about Kubrick as we're as we're circling around, like just the level of craft and attention to detail and experimentation that he brought to all of his movies. Right. Mm-hmm. Kubrick only made 13 feature films. In making 13 feature films, the only genre he w- he worked in more than once was the war movie. He made several different war movies. Otherwise, Every movie he made was essentially a one-off in terms of the genre. And yet, amongst 13 films, I would argue he made the best film ever made in six different genres. No other filmmaker can boast anything close to that. No other filmmaker even does so much work across genres. I think just because of longevity and clout and talent, you know, Spielberg and Ridley Scott both mm-hmm. have, tr- you know, have very varied resumes. And yet, as we talked about in our Spielberg versus Scorsese episode, like Spielberg essentially works within three formulas. Spielberg has his, you know, high class historical epic. He has his science fiction chase movie. And I mean, that's kind of it. And then some weird combination of the two where he's doing a chase movie that's a little bit more grounded in reality. But I mean, that's mm-hmm. what's, that's what Spielberg does. Kubrick, you can't really look at anything Kubrick did and go, Oh yeah, that's what he sort of defaults to. There's no default setting with this guy. He's inventing not only his style and his approach, but I mean, like I said, he, he's literally trying to reinvent how you tell stories in these genres with every new movie that he does. And bizarrely, crazily, 
succeeds almost every single time, which is well, just I'll, nuts. Well, I'll say one innovation. I say, I, I, for me, uh, again, different palette, but like, I think innovations that I can really credit them with in my life that I've seen, like I've seen traced back to them countless times is this sort of like, uh, not just that symmetry stuff that Wes Anderson and people like that mess around with. There's an intensity of gaze that's happening, you know, and there's a voyeuristic, even more voyeuristic. I hate when people call movies voyeuristic. Of course, there's a bunch of cameras watching people. Of course, the fucking thing's voyeuristic, but not all the time do you feel the camera inflected with a personality like i've I've watched the shining enough to, to see now there are times when the camera is the overlook hotel watching mm-hmm. our characters and plotting their demise and 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 using itself to like propel jack nicholson to do shit like when he's knocking down the the, the when he's knocking holes in the shit to get the shelly fucking the camera's jerking back and forth as though like it's it's jerking it, back with each of his blows like get it it's moving get her. with the axe with yes. the axe get her get her it's 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 instigating you dig yep. what i'm saying and like oh, totally. i love i love that he does that a lot he does that shit a lot i mean it again it's like he he adapts to whatever is going to serve the material because yes in the shining you see a lot of those weird camera moves and weird angles and like the very um, you get those uncomfortable close ups that he'll either zoom into or out of a lot. But then you mm. look at something like Barry Lyndon and that entire movie is staged like Renaissance paintings. And again, mm. that's very intentional. It's like now we're going to pull the camera way back, create that sense of remove rather than like placing you intensely in the middle of the scene. And create these tableaus and the, use the mise-en-scene to sort of fill the frame with light and, and all those candles that we were talking about and all these people and all these, you know, gaudy furnishings, which is kind of what the movie is about, is sort of just the, the Rococo gaudiness of the times. But again, he'll use, he, yes, he likes one-dimensional perspective. He likes to have characters spike the lens every now and then. But just the the general approach to the filmmaking on every movie is very very different, you know. I, mm-hmm. You can you can find a lot of YouTube videos talk, you know, comparing and contrasting. Like, oh, he he always uses one point perspective shots, but the way he uses those shots are very different in different movies. Mm-hmm. It seems to me kind of what uh, one of the things Edit was talking about with the Golden Girls uh, in our and in, in one of our uh, upcoming episodes. Not to give something away, but. Um, we we were talking about how each character was written with their own sense of humor. And it feels like when he takes a movie, he takes each movie and makes it its own specific type of thing that's thought out in a way that's like, okay, well, I'm making a war movie, but I'm not making a war movie. I'm making a movie that's about this. You know, well, I would and, even argue, I mean, I would even argue that, and Maybe we can get into some of these greatest movies of all time, but sure, we should. I think every time he tackles a new genre, he tries to make a movie that's about something other than the characters. And I think that's where you get a lot of these accusations that he's, you know, a cold or sterile director, because mm. it's really every movie he's he's very blatantly using the characters to interrogate an idea. I don't even want to say a theme necessarily, but like. 
Full Metal Jacket is a great example because while there are some incredibly memorable characters in that movie, Full Metal Jacket is really about the tension of like what it takes to fight a war and then what that does to people. And just he wants and this is the other thing about Kubrick and I think you could say this about most of his movies for as sort of intellectual of a filmmaker as he is he's not trying to learn you something you know what i mean mm. like he doesn't want you to go into the movie and come away with a specific point of view he wants you to go into the movie and come away sort of disturbed by the question and so full metal jacket is that way with the question of how you create soldiers like mm -hmm. you need soldiers who can do all this horrible shit but do you actually want to create those people? And I don't know if the movie answers that question. You might have your own opinion, but I don't think the movie really hedges. And it's the same way with 2001, right? 2001 is about man's relationship to technology. And like, does technology allow us to do wondrous and amazing things and make our lives much easier and in a way, but then in a weird way, also much more mundane? And it sort of turns us into robots ourselves and it, it robs us of our own sort of natural humanity. Yes, to both of those things. So which is the right one? The movie doesn't tell you, but you should be thinking about it. And on and on down the line, it's like, I think The Shining is a great example where it's like, that's a movie. <laughs> King wrote the book about alcoholism. And it was this <laughs> external factor, right? And it was, this guy is essentially haunted by his alcoholism that gets externalized as the malevolent force in this hotel. And King was very, um, King was very perturbed, to put it mildly, about Kubrick's adaptation because Kubrick essentially removed the alcoholism from the Jack Torrance character. And it really was more about, no, this guy is just an awful man. And because King was writing The Shining to cope with his own alcoholism, the fact that you remove the externalization and just tell a movie about an awful person was really missing King's point. But what it did is it put the viewer in this very uncomfortable situation of like, essentially, Jack Torrance is just a man who has his own goals and desires that he falls very short of and then starts to blame that on the compromises that he had to make in his life in order to keep his family doesn't really take attack. Well, was that a noble thing for Jack Torrance to do? Sure. The, the, can you also understand why it might drive him crazy? Sure. Should he murder his family? Probably not. But like at the end of the day, <laughs> you, you also kind of feel sorry for how he, how the movie ends for him because it's like he's such a pathetic guy and he goes through such like a horrible thing. And it's it, again, it's just it's all about that tension of like, I'm not trying to make a point. I just want you to examine something from as many angles as possible and just take that home with you to stew on. I think this is why I don't like The Shining. And I think we need to drill down on this. My dislikes. Important part of the podcast. No, I'm just saying. Like, I, I, no, I'm just saying. I I like it in that I get a whole different message than that. So much different. It's amazing. Like when I'm looking at the movie, I am seeing the inevitability of something. 
And maybe that's what I don't like about it because mortality is that way. Jack Torrance had no chance because he's always been at the Overlook. The Overlook has had him for multiple generations, probably uh, multiple iterations of him as as a person on this planet. That person has found his way to that Overlook 17 fucking times to me in my mind and my head canon. There's so maybe maybe not 17 times, maybe like two or three times. He's found his way back there. He might have been there as one of the people who killed the Indians that the land is built on. He might have come back there, been been having to be a logger there, have, building the hotel. He might have came back as that person who was popping champagne way back in the days. You know, uh, he might have been that character, and this might be his other, his la- one of his most recent lives as this person who toils and dies on this land, is drawn back to that land, is drawn back to that scenario, goes crazy there, and dies. That's how I, 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 that's how I feel his soul is. And I think his kid and his, and his woman are trapped in that inevitability. They get dragged into the woods to go shepherd a fucking hotel in the middle of the woods with with nothing to do. They get dragged into this situation by the inevitability of it all. It's interesting because I, I never really thought through, I, I, I never actually thought that the movie The Shining makes sense on any sort of like linear, timeline right that whole idea of why is he in the photo from 19 whatever at the end of the Mm -hmm. movie but it never bothered me because i do agree with you there's that sense of like inevitable failure but to me the sense of inevitable failure was sort of was if you are somebody that has ambitions and you don't reach them by a certain age you will inevitably come to resent your loved ones and it's Mm -hmm. it's a very disturbing message but to me that was what jack torrance but that, that was both what the hotel and Jack Torrance, the character, represented was this idea that like misery is inevitable if you are essentially outshooting your co- if you're trying to outshoot your coverage, you know, um, if you're trying to because Torrance's whole thing was like he wanted to be a writer, but he just couldn't quite do it. And so mm-hmm. everything in his life was some weird compromise of like. Well, I got to do all this other shit in life, but I still, the only thing I really care about is being the writer. And he and his family were trapped in that. And there is an inevitability that like that will mm-hmm. just leave you in this awful place. I, just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying oh, that, yeah, that since that. he was, yeah, since he was, I'm just saying for my head canon, since he was born, he had that yen to be a writer and have that yen to get his experience out to people. But what is that experience made of? probably a bunch of gobbledygook and gobbledygook and cowardice that's what kind of ends up being the case when you haven't written anything by a certain age or at least you start feeling that way is that like i might have lived a cowardly life i didn't live enough dope shit that i needed to just drop down as soon as it happened like hemingway or some of these great men maybe i'm not a great man and maybe part of not being a great man like you're alluding to is because i married a woman at 26 and da 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 and all this kind of shit you start to build this castle of like all your regrets and all i'm saying is he didn't have a chance because he wanted to be a writer, and that that's what kept him perpetually at an income state that he was enticed to go back up into the fucking woods to that place again. If he yeah, was yeah, a big-time yeah. author somewhere, he'd never go stay at that goofy hotel and kill his, kill his people, or maybe he would have. Maybe that's how it would have got him. He would have been a no. famous author at an author's retreat up there and ended up killing five, six motherfuckers. You know what I mean? It's just... It, Look, I think the real lesson that you can get from The Shining is that uh, clearly if you want to be an artist, you will go crazy and kill people. (laughs) 
uh, we're, we're proof positive, baby. But no, yeah, I think that's the why fact, we're stuck away from it. And the fact that we can get these interpretations out of that movie is super great. Uh, we've talked about Full Metal Jacket a little bit. I want to I want to talk about uh, Bill your experience with 2001 because obviously oh. it's one of those things that a lot of our fans will have interacted with. And to just for my part, I I couldn't come at it clean because it was part of the world. Yeah, like I had seen parodies of it so much, I couldn't come at it clean. So it was a weird watch for me when I very first watched it. It's a beautiful film. It's a it's a it needs to be in a museum. Indiana Jones need to save this motherfucker. I get all that, but I couldn't come at it clean. So what was your experience of watching it? Oh, you could understand it. Obviously, I, I had the same experience that like, you know, so much of it was just in pop culture, you know, every essentially the entire storyline, everything going on with Hal, like I probably saw in a mm. combination of Simpsons episodes, Looney Tune cartoons, whatever else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just there. That said. I think part of one of the real challenges of 2001 is you sort of have to watch it with all of your expectations about what movies are supposed to be turned off because mm -hmm. it's not any of those things. Mm -hmm. And if you can meet it on its own terms, it will blow your mind. And I say that like I've now seen I've I've seen it in 70 millimeter at some of the old historic um, theaters here in L.A. that do this sort of thing three different times now and i swear to god i probably have seen 2001 20 times total and every time i see it is a better experience than the last time i saw it and it's just one of those movies that i, I almost want to do a commentary track like in time with the movie because it gets so much flack for being fat and for being indulgent mm -hmm. and i would argue with you that it's really really not that literally every shot and every cut in that movie is giving you something different that all adds up to a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. Is it slow? Yes. Is that slowness unnecessary or, or even pretentious or indulgent? I would argue absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But again, you have to watch it through its own lens. You have to watch it as a movie that's almost trying to teach you how to appreciate it as you go along. But I, I'm telling you, man, like to me, that is Kubrick's crowning achievement, not just because he essentially invented entire styles of visual effects by himself, not by himself, but out of his own brain to make that movie. Um, but it, it asks unanswerable questions and leaves you somewhat satisfied with what it gives you. It, it portrays ideas in a way that no, to me, no other film ever has, right? Like it asks these big questions about what is humanity and, and what it, what are our limitations and why? And, I've never had an experience seeing any other movie like I have when I saw 2001 and was sort of able to push all of the pop culture awareness to the back of my brain and just see it as if for the first time, which is mm -hmm. to me is like the most challenging thing. But if you could see it as if you've never seen anything about it, and then again, without any preconception about this is how a science fiction film works mostly inspired by Star Wars in the modern era, it will take your breath away. It's just one of those movies. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's just talk about a simple fact. This movie is so good, 
It started. It started. It well, I shouldn't say it started. It helped start people thinking the moon landing was faked. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole other damn thing. I know, but, <laughs> but yes, one of those I mean, things yeah, to think no. about. That's how good he was. It 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 looked so real. It looked so. Mm. It felt so gritty. It felt like like there was a real thing happening when you're watching it that you you could go, oh well. That thing that I saw on TV, that could totally have been faked. Easily. Because well, this looks this yeah. good, but also feels real. Because it didn't feel... Like, well, Star Wars is great. It doesn't feel real at all. And it's not supposed to. We landed on the moon in 1969. And 2001 came out in 1968. And that means 2001 was in production for a couple of years before 1968. And <laughs> essentially, Kubrick portrays space flight... Uh, the moon's surface, uh, long distance space flight, which is something that we had, was not even really on our radar at the time in real life, with such fidelity that he became part of the moon landing as fake. This guy could do it before we even knew what it was like <laughs> on the moon. So mm-hmm. why couldn't he have just faked the whole damn thing? And yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think that's the uh, the best, um, what do you want to call it, recommendation for seeing 2001, but it speaks to <laughs> no, Kubrick's no. Uh, exacting genius, for sure. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 <clears throat> the interesting, not the interesting part of it, it's so interesting, and I think it is one of the few movies of that type where I just felt as though it was almost uninflected. That movie, that's what I'm saying, like, like the Overlook Hotel and different shit happening in The Shining seems like the camera is malevolent and it's doing stuff. In 2001, I felt like the camera was just like almost impassively where it needed to be to show this sliver of the universe that we needed to see to stack together to make the overall meaning and theme of the movie. So it was like, yes, do Eisenstein's theory of editing, whatever you see is on purpose and the way it's stacked is on purpose. But I just felt like it was kind of recording the very second of life that I needed to see to understand the movie, but not necessarily as inflected or as, you know. But I would argue that that's totally intentional, that, you know, Mm -hmm. part of the thesis of 2001 is that the more technologically advanced we become, the less human we ultimately become, that it robs Mm -hmm. humanity of sort of our vitality, right? So when you get to the space station, and everything feels so sterile from the camera work to the performances. It's like you're mm-hmm. sitting there with those people as they're talking, you know, they're having just the driest, mo- most nonsensical conversation. But you're in a Hilton hotel and it's labeled right there on the wall in space and they're all drinking <laughs> tea or whatever. That mm-hmm. again, it's all intentional because the movie is about the loss of humanity in a technologically advanced civilization. And so, so he, he wants was also you to, a prophet. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes. And he wants you to feel like the whole thing is very banal. The banality is intentional. And oh, no, I definitely get that. Yeah. Yeah. But for, for, for your average viewer, that cannot, that is not always good. But again. Sure. Which is, but which is why I say, like, you have to sort of, try to understand that like nothing about this movie is is lazy 
So then what's the next explanation? You you, you have to engage yes. with it on that level. I think if I sat down with Stanley Kubrick, he might say that he doesn't even believe in genre. He believes in stories. And if I want to do a certain type of story, like, yeah, I've done yeah. war pictures, war wars in there. But like everything else is like, I mean, this horror movie where I've spun it into some multi-generational tale is a simple tale of alcoholism, al- alcoholism to Bill and to the great Stephen King and remorse about the path not taken. And then uh, Full Metal Jacket is about, yeah, automatization. You know, uh, 2001, to a certain degree, is about going from a wild state to a totally tame state. Maybe there's some good part of humanity that's in between. Maybe keeping some of our savagery and our sniffing each other and our mating rituals and our stuff is better than sitting at a, at, at Pan Am Hotel and then going upstairs to take sex pills, doing popping a pill for almost everything, kind of like we do. And it's and it's just it's just very interesting. Like uh, one of the, yep. the 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 theories people have about uh, 2001 is like it, it has it has a weird relationship with food. You know, because with the way people eat in space, the way people eat in this new regimented future space shows you how far away from hitting something on the head and gnashing the flesh out of it, you know, is how far away from our origins we've we've come. And what does that mean? Is that better? Yeah. I mean, you also have to understand that, like, the entire movie is asking the question, is that better? Because the whole idea, right, is that the first piece of technology ever invented by man was a murder weapon. And the, the monolith, in a weird way, is just sort of, is just sort of an, uh, uh, a convenient placeholder so that you can posit, oh no, this is the first time it happened, right? In reality, it probably wasn't contact with an alien civilization that sparked our brains to think, wait, I can pick this thing up from the ground and use it to achieve my goals. But at some point, that did happen in the history of humanity, and the the whole thesis of the movie is that that was the invention of technology, and that we have been on this unbroken chain from then until now, as exemplified by what they call the most mind-blowing jump cut in the history of cinema, from that bone falling out of the sky to the nuclear weapons platform in orbit around the Earth, that in... In coming from there to here, look at how much more wonderful our lives are, because we're not apes scratching around and beating each other to death in the dirt. And yet, look how much little appreciation we have for life, because we're all essentially these weird automatons who are just on pills for everything. And again, the Mm -hmm. movie, I don't think, really reconciles that, but it shoves it right in your face and asks you to think about it a lot. And I think food is just an extension of that. I think you're right that like the food, uh, 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 the food throughout the movie, whether they're like ripping apart an animal in the prologue or whether they're eating out of weird roll up tubes through the rest of it is all very disconcerting. And it's meant to be, it's meant like those contrasts are meant to be drawn in your mind. So uh, again, it's just, it's like, I don't know. There's there's things in 2001 that I often hear cited as being like off-putting or pretentious or whatever. And to me, it's always like, no, just appreciate it for what it's trying to do. And it will just add to the mind-blowing effect that that movie should have on you. Mm -hmm. Well, every movie is just a big stack of choices. And I think Stanley Kubrick stands out as a person who's made a billion a billion of these choices that you can see like the, the people who've dissected uh the shining the people who've dissected 2001 and all the different uh 
factors that went into producing it. And, and like you said, uh, it predicted so many things and all that jazz. Uh, I even heard that, uh, Arthur C. Clarke wasn't all the way done with the book when they first started doing all the shit. Like he was right there when Arthur C. Clarke was making the book. It was like almost how, how like casino, the book was written alongside the movie. I, that blew my mind. I did not know that at all. I mean, it, they were very close in their in their origins. So I don't know. I, I'll just say I think 2001 is probably his strongest work. But I made the comment earlier, and I feel like I should justify it, uh, that he made arguably the best film ever made in six different genres. So let me just let me run that down if I could. And maybe it'll be a jumping off point to talk about some of these other movies. Oh, so, yeah, well, we've been building up to it, baby. <laughs> yeah, so if you stuck with us this long, you'll actually get my list. Um, so 2001, science fiction. I don't think any better science fiction movie's ever been made. Um, I would argue Dr. Strangelove, probably the best comedy ever made for cinema. Um, Clockwork mm. Orange, best dystopian future movie. I don't know of a better one than Clockwork Orange. Barry Lyndon arguably best period drama the shining i don't know if i buy it so much i think there's a lot of other good contenders in this one but possibly best horror movie ever made full metal jacket i think out and out is best war movie ever made and i would argue that whatever you want to classify lolita as some sort of weird psychosexual satire i don't know that anybody's ever made a movie like lolita that's better than lolita and a lot of people might even put Spartacus on that list. I actually yeah, don't I was think gonna that's, mention. Well, I don't I don't think that's the best sword and sandal epic ever made, but a lot of people would disagree with me. So again, it just goes to show that like I mean, every time this guy makes a movie, it is just it's in the conversation for best movie ever made in that in that genre. And that's not even getting like Eyes Wide Shut, last movie he ever made. That's a unbelievable movie and again i'm not quite sure how to classify its genre but psychosexual thriller uh, that's mm. got to be in the conversation with so, a little bit of uh commentary on rich people for sure for sure class yeah a lot of a lot of class stuff in there but well, see and that, and that's why i think he doesn't believe in genre because mm. in in a science fiction movie you're supposed to portray the the issues of now in space, and then wrap it up. Somebody gotta beat something, blow something up, the princess, the fucking, the, the lizards gotta get free at the end, or killed, whatever. Something has to happen. Not a fucking star child that makes you question your existence and all that kind of shit. That's not <laughs> what's supposed you, to happen at the end. You don't think a dude should just supposedly. be turned into a fetus by a giant thing? Do you understand? So that's not what's supposed to happen in your sci-fi. <laughs> in a war movie, what are we supposed to do? We got to get all these murderers and assholes and sexual assaulters out of the dirty dozen pen and get them, put a medal on them and go fight this thing. We got to go get Private Ryan. We got to accomplish the mission. And once we get the mission done, we're heroes because in the end, war is truly justified because the ends justify the means. And sometimes you got to use a hammer to fuck up everything when you just got a hammer. What does Full Metal Jacket do? In the end, the fearsome Viet Cong that you, the man in black, Charlie, this giant figure who's been menacing you forever, is a little girl. And you don't even have the balls to mercy kill her because you're a bitch. You have a bunch of fucking training to get you to the place where this young person who has been just defending their homeland, basically, or they're, maybe they're evil as fuck, it doesn't matter. This young person is a soldier just like you, indoctrinated just like you from this total point of view. And 
doesn't even have a, a monolithic military state behind her. She's just one person. She took y'all all out. It, 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 it breaks apart the very artifice of you being created as a soldier when you ain't no better than her. You know what I'm saying? It, it yeah. ruins the artifice of all that soldier shit. It destroys it. And so I on mean, and I so would, forth. I would argue Clockwork Orange as well, right? You look at a dystopian mm-hmm. thriller, the, you know, the anti-establishment freedom fighter is supposed to rise up and destroy all of the institutions which are holding society on the brink of collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that movie, not only is your anti-authority freedom fighter ultimately brainwashed into the um, standard society, but you almost want him to be because he's such <laughs> a rotten asshole to the core. And so, again, it's just it, it it's that thing. It leaves you in that weird place of going like, well, I don't want this guy wantonly raping and murdering people. But I also don't like the idea that, like, you get him to stop doing that by essentially robbing him of his humanity and turning him into a mindless drone. And again, there's no real solution presented to you, but it definitely <laughs> challenges you to think about that situation in a lot different terms than any other story is going to put in your mind. It's one of the mm-hmm. few times that you've taken a pile of garbage and made me really feel bad for them. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, and it's like, a and when I say, I, I, I think it's almost too nice to say a pile of garbage. It is what I would consider the lowest of human beings. Most people like that really probably should be killed. Like, but that's the whole point, Ron, is you think that until you watch it happen and you watch like him get his punishment and you're like, Oh no, I don't want to see that. (laughs) Exactly. That's what was so amazing about it. Like it really was like, Oh, well I do want this guy to not do the things he does, but this is insane. And I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, anything that makes you think like that, and then also question if you're question your morals a little bit. It's so impressive that, that anyone pulled that off at all. Well, the want to the want to make the audience in a popular format that costs millions of dollars question their very presuppositions that got them into the theater in the first place. Half of the time you got their ass in the theater, it's because you tricked their ass into thinking that they was going to come <laughs> see a war movie or a sci-fi or a horror. And I was just thinking about how he explores the genre – in horror, I mean, in The Shining, it's the easiest to diagnose of all. All that, all, all of what you said, Bill, is, is supporting this. In horror movies, you go out into the woods, monsters in the woods. You and your fucking family defeat the monster, and the guy who comes to comes over to help you defeat the monster, he dies very bravely, helping you and your family defeat the monster. And at the end, you get a happy family, and you guys survived the test that would have rent you apart as a family would have destroyed you. You're, you're back together and you're better than ever after this experience. Hoo-ha! Nope. The monster's your fucking dad. And now you got to live the rest of your life knowing your dad tried to kill your mom and you. And the only thing that, that saved y'all motherfuckers was cold <laughs> or else you would have, <laughs> you would have got yeah. your ass chopped up. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, you never get I, any closure. It's great. And I, and, and I want to talk about like, uh, uh, Clockwork Orange, also the weirdest lines of dialogue. Yeah, talk about creating a world. That jive that they're talking, it's it's it really immerses you, and then you start speaking it. You start learning it. It like makes you learn their language so that you meet even more um, identify with Homeboy and his droogies as they get fucked up. Yeah, and and again, I think that 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 
willingness to embrace, you know, the weird language and just, I mean, that everything about that movie is just weird and off-putting. But again, like the willingness to just buy into the world and the vision and not try to hedge. I mean, it just shows a confidence in your own material that comes from that same place of like, oh, we're going to go six months and a couple million dollars over budget. Okay. Like that's, that's what the movie needs. That's what the story <laughs> needs. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that's something. Yeah. Uh, that's what all those motherfucking takes come from uh, as well. But like also just the meticulous art, art uh, direction and all that stuff. So if you were going to give um, our audience uh, their primer on going to discover Kubrick, because m- most of the people listening to this are really just into us rex- waxing rhapsodic and sometimes we'll have something profound to say. And I think we did that pretty good throughout this. So if you were giving somebody a primer of things of Kubrick's to watch, obviously they should watch all of them. But like with the couple of the ones that we didn't talk about that I want to touch on briefly, yeah. the killing is interesting as fuck dude oh that's an early one i've never seen that one i haven't haven't seen seen so so the best known kubrick movies are like his last the 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 Mm -hmm. latter half of his filmography right Mm -hmm. so his first couple movies fear and desire killer's kiss the killing and then paths of glory i think was like the first big well-known one i have not seen any of those four um including paths of glory which again is a pretty well-known movie so I can't really yeah. speak to those. But go on. Well, no, killing. I, about it? I, I've seen I've seen the killing and I could see people doing the reservoir dogs thing. I could see people doing different stuff. It is people are gonna call blasphemy, but it's very Soderbergy in how it's showing all these different aspects of the heist, but not Soderbergy like Ocean's Eleven, Soderbergy like right. traffic. It's it goes through all these different aspects of a heist and all the different people that are going to be involved in it and all their different stories that are in there and just makes this, you have to make your, it's like a, you get, you put it together yourself. He's been weird since the get go, even on studio pictures, probably on Spartacus. I haven't seen Spartacus, so I can't comment on that. Yeah. Which is probably his most mainstream movie. I, I, I mean, I would definitely say I have not seen Spartacus enough to, to comment much about it, but Spartacus is like the least Kubrick Kubrick movie. So Definitely don't look at that and take that as an indication of anything, because famously, he did not write that, which normally he is also at least a co-writer on his movies. Um, mm-hmm. To its credit, it was written by Dalton Trumbo, who's a legendary screenwriter. Mm-hmm. But um, I believe that movie was ultimately like taken away from Kubrick in post-production um, just because yeah, he was not happy with the edit. Basically, yeah. he, he basically said it didn't re- it didn't have the vision he had. Yeah, that was that was sort of his his first and only foray into like a big glossy studio picture, and it did not go well. Well, he he came on to save it, and he did, and that's I think why, even though he refused to participate anymore, he played on the big boy stage one time and was very successful at it. Even though he didn't get the product he wanted, he was very successful that that he he helmed something that was successful. How about that? And so that gave him mm-hmm. enough cachet, I think, going away from that to be like. Fuck it. Now I'm going to do anti-war movie war movies and anti-horror horror movies and shit until I die. So if you were to rank things from the most Kubrickian to least as far as people like you want to watch Kubrick, you want to get into him. What do you Because like Eyes Wide Shut fucked me up? I just got to say I, I watched it and I just I wow that that as a last thing to leave on this earth, that movie fucked me up. 
Eyes Wide Shut is a great entry into Kubrick if you if you aren't familiar with Kubrick because Eyes Wide Shut is his only really modern movie. That movie was made it was released in 1999, uh, the year after he passed away, and the previous movie was Full Metal Jacket from 1987. So a movie from 1999 still has you know, enough similarities with modern sensibilities that it'll kind of get you into his world and you could start to sort of appreciate how he does things. I would say from there, you know, Full Metal Jacket 2001 and Dr. Strangelove, to me, are the three most Kubrick Kubrick movies. And I think that they're mm-hmm. also different enough from each other that if you watch the three of those back to back to back, you would you're going to go, who the hell is this guy? That he's doing so many different things in so many different ways, tackling such weird different subject matter, and yet you're going to walk away from all of those movies just feeling like, well, that's a movie that I literally have never seen before. They should blow your mind. And I've spoken enough about how you should be watching 2001 to make it work. I would say, you know, from there, you can't go wrong in whichever direction you choose. Just understand that, like, every movie is a weird, singular experience. And, uh, yeah, make sure you get to Lolita, Barry Lyndon, The Shining. Uh, make sure, even, like I said, even at some point, watch Spartacus. Just don't use that as your entry point. So I think that's my big recommendation on Kubrick. Awesome. So that was our episode talking about Stanley Kubrick. We couldn't even do a versus this time because there's no one like the guy. So uh, as you guys know, there's no one like us. So join our Patreon. Huh? That was a good, <laughs> that was a good ad. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash the greatest pod. You can get extra podcasts for five bucks or you can get extra podcasts and art for seven. So join whatever tier you would like um, and do this. Rate and review this podcast. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more we move up in the charts, the more people check us out, and uh, the bigger we get, uh, which, you know, we would love that. So thank you for everyone who has done that, and thank you, as always, for listening to another episode of The Greatest Pod.